I recently read a book, yeah, no surprise, I do like to read, um, <laughs> by uh, Curtis Freeman, and he happens to be a professor at Duke as well, and I promise I read authors who are not connected to Duke, but he's a professor of theology and Baptist studies there, so I wish I had taken a course with him. I didn't know that I would end up in a Baptist church at that point, but he's written this marvelous book, Contesting Catholicity, Theology for Other Baptists. Um, Baptists historically have been neither Catholic nor Protestant. They've been something other. From their original uh, separatism in, in England, where they protested the Anglican Church, to today, Baptists have been isolated from other denominations. And in this book, he looks through the history of the Baptist tradition, showing that that has not always been the case that there have been other Baptists throughout history who have leaned into their distinctive Baptist identity, but have also located themselves within the wider universal church. And so that is what the book is about, and it's well worth the read. Um, But in his concluding chapter, he offers a kind of plea to readers as they look toward the future. And in this section, he quotes from a novel that was written in the 1950s uh, that is about this 25th century future church. And I'd like to quote from this section at length, if you don't mind. So Freeman writes, In his novel from a Christian ghetto, Geddes McGregor, and that book was published in 1954, 70 years ago, Geddes McGregor offered a forecast of the future through the perspective of a 25th century church historian, exchanging a series of letters to a young man studying for ministry. The student is majoring in late medieval Christianity, that is, the church in 20th century America and Great Britain. In one letter, the medievalist, so the scholar, writes his young understudy as follows. He says, we 25th century Christians are so completely disreputable in the eyes of the world that there is never any question of keeping up the good name of Christianity among those outside it. He says, our name is so vile that we can attend to our proper business of realizing the ideal Christian community free from fear of what the world may think or say. Freeman goes on to say, Who can know whether the vision McGregor imagines in the 1950s, whether this is the one that lies ahead? But the post-Christian future toward which the church is moving, he says, offers the opportunity to take leave of the grand delusion of a majority religion, and to focus rather on the proper business of asking what it means for the church to be the church without worrying about what the world may think or say. That novel was written in the 1950s, 70 years ago, and I think it was prescient in some of its proposals. Friends, we are moving toward a future, we may already be in it, 
in which Christianity is disreputable, vile, without good name in the world. Now, some may perceive this as a tragedy, but I, with Freeman, see it as an opportunity. I think it means that we can finally take our leave, as he says, from this delusion of a, of a majority state religion. And instead, we can attend to our proper business, our only business, which is simply being the church, being who we are. What I think Freeman is saying is that our business as the church is not to fill the ranks of civil government, not to leverage political influence for cultural gain, nor to amass power, status, or popularity in the world. Rather, our business, friends, is to be the church. That's it. Now, I open with this because our passage for this morning in Genesis 28 presents a stunning vision of what it means to be the church, believe it or not. It presents a place in which Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, whose name would become Israel, a place in which Jacob meets God, a realm in which heaven and earth intersect, a space in which God identifies himself, reaffirms promises, and ensures his continued presence with Jacob. What I want to talk about this morning is the church, you and me, this, and what exactly this is all about. My hope through our time is that we'll recover a sense of who we are, what we are, and that we'll attend anew to our proper business, which is being the church. So that is my plan for this morning, um, and we're going to get into the passage in just a minute. But before we do that, friends, let us pray. Father, thank you so much for guiding us. As every generation learns from those who went before what it means to walk with God, what it means to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus, we rely on you for guidance, for direction. Help us, Lord, to know our history, to respect and, and honor our history, to locate ourselves within it, but to learn from it and to look at our present and figure out what you are calling us to today. Jesus, please be present in our study of your word this morning, be the word walking up and down these aisles before us. We need you and we love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, friends, would you turn with me to Genesis 28? 28. Uh, now last week we were in Genesis 25, so we have skipped over a few chapters. Um, and so let me try to fill in the gaps, as it were. 
In Genesis 25, we meet Jacob and Esau, one of three sets of twins in the entire Bible. Um, And Jacob comes out grasping his brother's heel. And we read the whole story about Jacob deceiving his brother Esau and stealing the birthright. Well, what happens next is Isaac, the father of Jacob and Esau, travels away from where they were living in Beersheba because of a famine. And we get a story that's quite similar to that of Abraham when he went to Egypt and he lied about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. So the same kind of thing happens with Isaac. Isaac is trying to deceive as well. And then after this, not only does Jacob end up with Esau's birthright, but Jacob goes on to steal his blessing as well. So Jacob had deceived Esau before, and then he deceives his father, Isaac, stealing the blessing. And at this point, Esau is livid and wants to kill his brother. And so Isaac says to Jacob, go, you need to flee from here. Go to the land of your mother, Rebekah, and find a wife for yourself. Your brother is trying to kill you. And so our passage picks up uh, right there as Jacob is journeying away from home, searching for a wife for himself. He wasn't given a servant to find a wife like Isaac was. He's looking on his own. So Genesis 28, we'll read verses 10 through 19 in the ESV. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. You may be seated. So in this passage, friends, Jacob does roughly seven things, seven things. We see that he travels, he dreams, he wakes up, he learns, he fears, he builds, and he names. This is one of those stories explaining why a place has its name, why Bethel is called Bethel, but Jacob does a lot of other things in this story, seven things. 
Now, whereas Jacob does seven things, Yahweh does one thing. He speaks. He speaks to Jacob. But in his speech to Jacob, who'd become Israel, Yahweh identifies himself clearly. He reaffirms promises made to Abraham and Isaac, but applies them personally to Jacob. And he ensures his continued presence with Jacob as he journeys alone in the wilderness. God speaks to Jacob in this ordinary, at first unnamed, way station in the wilderness. And this place would become the second most popular site in Israelite history behind Jerusalem. So what I'd like to do, friends, is read this text verse by verse, studying the actions of Jacob, but more importantly, the words of God to Jacob. And as we look at this place that would become Bethel, I I want you to think of the church. So let's dive in then, beginning at verse 10. Verse 10. So the first thing that Jacob does is travel. Like I said before, uh, Jacob has left. He's been told to leave his family's home in Beersheba. Uh, And he is heading toward Mesopotamia, where Abraham was from and where Rebekah and her household came from. So he's headed outside the land of Canaan, the promised land, to find a wife. But it says he left Beersheba, where they were living, and he went toward another named place, Haran. Now, where else is Haran mentioned in Genesis? Our series in Genesis began in Genesis 12, where God speaks to Abraham, Abram at that point, in Haran, and says, go from this place into the land that I will show you. And we get all these promises that God proclaims for Abraham, and that was in Haran. It's where Abraham's father, Terah, died, a significant place. So the mention of Haran here ought to recall Genesis 12 with all of those promises that God made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. So the first thing is he travels, and it says in verse 11 that he came to a certain place, a particular place, an unnamed place, an ordinary place, and he stayed there that night only because the sun was starting to set. It wasn't a significant place like Beersheba or Haran. It was simply a, a place in the wilderness where Jacob was when it started to get dark. And so it says, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it either under his head or beside it or near it. The preposition in Hebrew is hard to translate. There's little evidence for ancient Israelites using uh, rocks as pillows. So it's unlikely that that is what's going on, although it's possible. The rock, though, would become significant. And you can think in the Hebrew Bible of of the rock in the wilderness from which the Israelites uh, gleaned water. You can think of the, the rock that was the beginning of the temple foundation, the rock that the builders would reject. Rocks are symbolic and significant in Israelite history. But he takes this rock and puts it either under or near his head, and then he goes to sleep. Alone in the wilderness, traveling, 
fleeing from his brother Cain, I mean Esau. He is not familiar with Yahweh like Abraham and Isaac are. And Jacob goes to sleep. And the next thing he does in verse 12 is he dreams. And this is no ordinary dream, friends. So Jacob travels, he dreams, and here we get Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now remember, friends, this is way before established institutional religion in Israel. There's no Torah, no Ten Commandments, no tabernacle, no temple, nothing like that. And so Yahweh is progressively revealing himself to the patriarchs, and Jacob, we haven't been told, Jacob hasn't met Yahweh personally. And here in this dream, he does. So we get a ladder or a, a stairway. I thought about opening with Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin and, you know, Stairway to Heaven, but, but I don't know what this is. And scholars uh, debate about what exactly this is. It's unlikely that it's a ladder in the modern sense of the term. Um, it could be a ramp, a kind of pyramid-like structure. It's, it's likely similar to what the builders in Genesis 11 were trying to build with the Tower of Babel, and some call this a ziggurat. It's like a temple that would connect the realm of human affairs with heaven, reaching into the sky. But he sees this ramp, this ladder, this pyramid set up on the earth, so its bottom is touching soil, the ground on which he is sleeping, and the top of it, the head of it, reached up toward heaven the realm of God. And behold, that is an interjection word in Hebrew. It should have an exclamation point. Behold, notice this. The angels of God, these divine messengers, were ascending and descending on it. This was a nexus connecting heaven and earth, a kind of intersection between the realm of God and the realm of human beings. We see the agents and messengers of God, these angels, going to and fro upon this ramp. In verse 13, it says, The Lord was there. The Lord, the God of Israel, Adonai, Yahweh, stood above it, probably at the top of it, related to it, above it, and said to Jacob these words. Now, I want you to notice the structure of his speech in visions like this, friends, which recur throughout the Hebrew Bible, what's more important is what is heard, not what is seen, okay? First thing Yahweh says is, I am, which the word Yahweh could be translated, I am. We see this in Exodus, I am who I am. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Yahweh identifies himself. I'm not just any God. I'm not just one of the gods that you grew up worshiping in this Mesopotamian context, the gods that you've heard about from your neighbors. I am this God, the God who has been faithful to your grandfather, the God who has been faithful to your father, and the God who will be faithful to you. He identifies himself clearly. There's no question who this God is. 
And then he talks about the land. He says, the land, the soil on which you lie, I will give to not just Abraham, not just Isaac, I will give to you and your offspring. You personally, Jacob, I will give this land to you. He's taking promises he's already made to Abraham and Isaac and is applying them personally to Jacob. Verse 14, your offspring, and as yet he has none, he's not married, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, more than 11 children, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and to the south. That's a poetic device referring to all directions and everything in between. You'll spread all over, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth Beyond just your family, all the families of the earth be blessed. These are the words that God has spoken already to Isaac and to Abraham. But here those promises are reaffirmed. The same words spoken, but affirmed and applied personally to Jacob. Our business in the church, friends, is not to come up with new things to say, but to say the same things and apply them to us in our context. God has identified himself personally as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, the God of Israel. And he's reaffirmed promises, applying them to Jacob here. And lastly, in verse 15, we get language that ought to remind us of the end of Matthew's gospel. He says, Behold, I am with you, Always, even till the end of the age. No, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, Jacob. I will guard you, preserve you, and I will bring you back to this land. He's headed out of the land to find a wife from among his mother's kin. He's leaving the land of promise, but Yahweh says, I will bring you back and I will give you this land. I will not leave you or forsake you until I have done everything I've said I would do. Here God ensures his continued presence with Jacob. After God speaks, Jacob wakes up. And I think this is significant because he returns to earth, as it were. Sunday morning should be a a sacred time, a sacred space, at which we leave the bustle and hustle of our weekly lives and come into a a different kind of place. But then we wake up, and we have to go back. And we have to take what we learned from that place and apply it to our lives. So Jacob wakes up. And then Jacob learns, it says. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He's learned a lot about Yahweh in the dream, and now he is convinced that Yahweh is present in this place, palpably present in this nameless place between Beersheba and Haran. In verse 17, it says that he was afraid. When you learn that Yahweh is present, often you get afraid. (laughs) But it's a fear that is full of awe, reverence, respect, Not necessarily a a, a fear for your life that you will be struck down at any moment, 
Although that is, as you'll see, that is part of it. He fears, and he says, how awesome. But this word awesome is from the same root as the verb afraid. How terrifying, how awful, how awesome is this place. This is a sacred place. It's none other than the house of God. In Hebrew, bet, bet Elohim, bet Elohim, and the gate of heaven. The language here is poetic. This really should be set in verse. The house of God, the gate of heaven are set in parallel. So in response to this appearance of God, Jacob breaks out in poetry, which happens often in Scripture. After learning, after fearing, Jacob builds in verse 18. It says that he took the stone that was near his head, As his brain is experiencing this dream, this vision of Yahweh, he takes that special stone and sets it up as a monument, as a pillar. And he actually anoints it with oil. As you'll see being done with David and other kings and figures in Israelite history, the Messiah, the Christ, that means the anointed one, the one who has oil poured on him. He anoints this stone. He builds an altar, a sacred place. And lastly, he names. It says in verse 19, he called the name of that place. Apparently, the place that was previously called Luz, which we haven't been told until now, he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. And friends, like I said, um, Bethel is the Second most popularly cited location in the Hebrew Bible after Jerusalem. This is no ordinary place. Bethel, the the house of God, this nexus connecting earth and heaven, would become in Exodus the tabernacle. The concept would become the tabernacle where God's presence resides. And then in time, the tabernacle would become the temple, at least in the minds of ancient Israel. And in the New Testament, Jesus, the Christ, talks about himself as a new tabernacle, a new temple. And if you've read the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that the earliest Christians talked about the church this way. Friends, our proper business Our only business is to be the church, is to to be what we were called to be. It's to be a place where heaven and earth intersect. It's to be a, a realm in which divine and human affairs mingle. The line gets blurry. It's to be a sacred space, a a nexus, a new Bethel, a place in which God's love, His faithfulness, His presence are made real. With Freeman, then, I think our business is not to win elections, not necessarily to control school districts, to influence the culture at large. Our business, our proper business, is to be what we are, 
And that is the church. The church. Friends, the kingdom of heaven, the church, Jesus says, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed in his field. It's like a little leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It's like a a small treasure that's hidden in a large plot of land. Or a little pearl that you find at the bottom of the sea. The kingdom of God, friends, like Bethel at first, is not loud, shiny, or even obvious. It's small, hidden, and subtle. But it's precious, oh so precious. Our proper business, made ever more clear, I think, by our current cultural moment, is nothing other than being the church. That's it. Being the kind of place where heaven and earth meet. A place where God speaks clearly. A place where travelers like Jacob meet God and are forever changed. Let me close with this. In our post-Christian moment, let us rejoice at this opportunity to reclaim our ancient calling, which is simply to be the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for working the way you do, often in a slow, subtle, underground kind of way, rather than a flashy, flamboyant, up-in-your-face kind of way, Lord. We are so privileged to be part of the work that you are doing, that you have been doing. Give us faith, give us trust, Lord especially at times when it seems like you are not working, when it seems like you've stopped working. Help us, Lord, to have faith that your promises, your kingdom plan is still unfolding and that we are part of it. Give us focus. Help us to be the kind of place where people meet God and leave transformed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.